And turn, please, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. We're in a series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow. In the midst of the seven trumpets this morning, Revelation 10, verse 1, this is the Word of God. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head and his feet. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he sat in his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and what is in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, uh, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go. Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing by this, on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let's pray. Father, indeed, your word does stand forever. We just, we just sang about that. Uh, Father, and we're grateful for it. It's been forever settled in the heavens. Lord, you spoke it and it's true and it's certain. We thank you for that. So, Father, as we look this morning at these words, we pray for your Spirit's help uh, to grasp what you're teaching us, Father. Uh, Father, to understand it, Lord, and to, and to do it, we would pray. Uh, help us by your Spirit again, in Jesus' name. Amen. When Becky and I go out to eat, particularly if we're going to a, a new restaurant we've not been to before or we are traveling someplace, very often I'll ask the server for a, a menu recommendation. Um, you know, what is the one thing on their menu that somebody really has to try? Uh, and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. But anyway, uh, and the Bible doesn't come with a lot of menu recommendations other than uh, that manna stuff for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, granted, the Jews in the Old Testament era faced uh, some menu limitations so that they would learn about holiness, uh, but those no longer apply. But in today's text, the angel recommends the sweet and sour scroll. Now, why is that? Well, let's go to the text and see. First, let's talk about the context. Now, you're going to remember that when we watched Jesus open the seven seals, uh, we saw that in between opening seal number six and seal number seven, there was an interlude, there was an interruption. Uh, and it gave us a, a glimpse of the church in heaven uh, as a way of assuring the readers uh, that the church would make it through the judgments 
that God was revealing in these seven seals. And now again, after six trumpets have blown, but before the seventh trumpet, we have another interlude. And it's going to run from 10.1 up to 11.14. It's another interruption. And this interlude is going to explore the relationship between the church and those who dwell on the earth. Again, that's John's code word for unbelievers. During the time between Christ's ascension and his return. Now, we actually introduced the idea of this last week as we looked at how we're to live during the sound of the six trumpets. We talked about Carl Truman's cultural protest. That the church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. That we offer a wider, uh, the wider culture a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Maybe you've noticed as we worked our way through Revelation, there's been an emphasis on, on worship and prayer. And both of those spring from being made in the image of God. We show the culture what it means to be truly human by our worship, uh, by our prayers. Again, both spring from being made in the image of God. Uh, both cases we acknowledge that being human means we're not the supreme controllers of our lives and of the universe. God is. We're not autonomous create creatures, but we're made in the image of God with the task of reflecting the image of God to the world. So this interlude focuses in on a relationship with unbelievers as we witness to them. And we're going to see it in two distinct scenes. First is chapter 10 this week. Then in the first 14 verses of chapter 11, before the seventh trumpet blows next week. They to go together as one. Chapter 10 really serves to introduce chapter 11. Uh, chapter 10 is fairly straightforward. Chapter 11 is arguably the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, as if you're reading ahead, you already know. Um, and uh, it should not be surprising to us, though, that a book written to prepare us for what's coming uh, would have a chapter with this theme. We certainly need to understand what our responsibility is as God's people to, to witness during the time of our trial and persecution with a focus on knowing and proclaiming the Word of God. Just one further context note. John now is back on earth this week. He's been in heaven itself. Now he's back on earth. And so what does he see in scene one here in chapter 10? Well, he sees a colossal angel. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Notice another mighty angel. Now, John saw the first mighty angel back in chapter 5. He was the mighty angel who called out in a loud voice that sounded throughout the universe, looking for someone who would come and open those seven seals who would be worthy. So now we have another mighty angel. Um, uh, now, there are scholars, good ones, who believe that given the description we have here, that this is in fact Jesus. They build their case. They go back to the Old Testament where Jesus is called the angel of the Lord when he appears. And then they look at some of the angel's descriptions here, which certainly uh, we associate with Jesus. But I'm going to humbly suggest that this is probably not Jesus. 
uh, because there's no other place in Revelation where he's called an angel. Nor does him likely, given the way it's the, we've been talking about the Lamb, that now the language was switched to an angel. So I believe he is, this is a mighty angel. Um, I would say, whichever way you interpret it really doesn't change the meaning uh, of the text uh, and the application of it. It's not affected. Uh, but this angel seems to be close associated with Jesus. He's coming down from heaven. He's a good representative to reflect the glory of God and the glory of God's throne room. Like Jesus will one day, he does descend with a cloud covering. Just as the clouds came down at Mount Sinai, surely this reflects God's glory as the angel comes from God's presence. He has a rainbow over his head. Uh, we know the rainbow is first found in Genesis chapter 9 in the vision of God there, uh, which we see in Ezekiel 1, which is actually Jesus. That includes a rainbow. And the rainbow... Though today it's been twisted and wrenched from its history by the secular sexual rebellion against God today, still to us it represents God's faithfulness in keeping His covenant, that that's what this angel is going to do. His face is shining like the sun. We think of Moses when he'd been in the presence of God up on the mountain. He had to wear a, a covering over his face when he came back down. The angel has legs like pillars of fire. Remember in the wilderness, the pillars of fire that that led God's people through the wilderness. He guided his providential care of them. So then we read verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Now we'll talk about the scroll and the angel's size in a moment. I just want to focus here on the roaring voice. Again, Jesus himself has a roaring voice back in chapter 1. But our minds go back to the Old Testament. The sound of the lion roaring is often connected with God speaking. Joel has that. Amos 1-2 tells us, The Lord roars from Zion. Amos 3 puts it this way. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So once again, the loud roaring, this loud announcement from this colossal angel fills the universe. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Again, our minds go to the Old Testament, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And as we think about this, we've seen the number seven signifies completeness. And this is a thunder that seems overwhelming to the earth. Thunder that points both to the message's content and a divine power and judgment. So John hears what is said, and just like he did with the seals and the trumpets, he's ready to write it down. And then he's told, stop. Now why? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, Evidently, the the seven thunders might have been another way of, of looking at what God's going to do, just like the seals, just like the trumpets, just like the bowls will be. Uh, that it's more information. But keep in mind, friends, God is not obligated 
to tell us everything about the future. The point would be that God has a lot in his plan that's simply not for us to know. That whereas maybe the, the larger scroll that Jesus held, uh, back took from the Father, uh, has the whole plan, uh, but this does not. Uh, so God has a lot that wants to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is, is one of my favorite fallback verses when y'all ask me hard questions. Which is what? The secret things belong to God. All right? Um, and um, uh, I, I've quoted that verse a lot over the years. Um, God does not tell us everything. He's not obligated to tell us everything. He tells us what we need to know. He tells us what He wants us to know. So there's more to the story than Revelation gives us. It's in these seven thunders. But there's not less to the story. And the angel of saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. All right, this is, this is not somebody standing on the beach with one foot in the water and one foot on the sand. All right? Uh, don't, this is a colossal angel. You've not seen anything like this in your life. All right? And he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And he's declaring God's authority over all creation. Heaven and the earth and the sea. He's declaring his greatness. And he raises his hand and takes an oath. It's the only time we find that in the book of Revelation. Something we see God himself do back in the book of Deuteronomy. Where God swears by his own name. And it all comes together to emphasize the authority the angel speaking with. The solemnity and the certainty of what's about to take place. There's to be no more delay in the fulfillment of God's plan. Indeed, when the seventh trumpet blows, on September 11th, I might add to you, it's going to blow for us, um, everything will be in place for Christ's return. And at that point, the mystery of God will be fully declared and completely fulfilled. Again, even as the seven seals end with Christ's coming, the seven trumpets lead to the second coming as well. The first six trumps have everything in place uh, that is ready for us. And at this point, God's complete hand plan for history is made known. Now remember, the unfolding of the gospel as mystery, uh, as mystery is being made known, was, was, uh, was uh, what Paul was talking about. He unfolded the gospel because mystery is the Old Testament. And it becomes clear in the New Testament, the mystery is made known. What Jesus did through his life, through the cross, through the resurrection, uh, his ascension. See, that was mystery to the Old Testament people as they looked to see how it was going to unfold. But to us, it's been made known. God has always, throughout history, slowly unfolded his plans through these called his servants, the prophets. Uh, Very typical way for God to refer to them in the Old Testament. What to people in the Old Testament days then was a mystery that they accepted by faith, we see known because Jesus has made it known to us. Now all the uncertainty about how the second coming of Jesus unfolds, there's certainly a great amount of uncertainty about that. 
A mystery is a word that has fascinated the church across the centuries to try and figure out the details of Jesus' return and what responsibility it gives us. Uh, That part of the mystery will finally be made known when Jesus comes again. So with that, we have a hint about what to take place. Six trumpets have blown. The stage is set. That's why we get to the end of Revelation. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. All right? So look down at the scroll. It's called a little scroll several times. The few times it just says scroll. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. All right. Um, Some think that the big scroll, the scroll in chapter 5, is the same as the little scroll here. Uh, And that's possible, but I I doubt that. Um, That scroll with the seven seals was handed from the Father to the Lamb, to Jesus. He alone was worthy to open it and have it. Here the angel gives what's called a little scroll to John. His word choice seems rather deliberate to make a distinction. Now to this point, John has been a, a primary an observer in Revelation, a spectator, a recorder, except for that one brief moment when he, when he weeps in uh, chapter 5. But suddenly here, he enters into the story itself in a rather dramatic way. And in the same way, We are to cease being mere observers, and we're to enter into the story as well. And I love John's boldness in verse 11. I went to the angel and told him to what? Give me the scroll. Now keep in mind, the angel's colossal size. It's meant to be intimidating with his booming voice. The repeated emphasis that is where he's standing in verses 2, 5, and 8. But John walks right up to him and says, give me the scroll, just as he was told to do. So the angel said to me, take and eat, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, and by eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. All right, so the angel makes the menu recommendation, all right? Take and eat the sweet and sour scroll. Now John was aware of Ezekiel's call to ministry, that he had to eat a scroll as well. Jeremiah ate the word of God too. Now we read the account of Ezekiel early and, and Jeremiah's reflection in the Declaration of Truth. And Ezekiel said eating the scroll was it, it tasted like honey. Indeed, not just Ezekiel says that, but what? Psalm 19 tells us it's like honey. Psalm 119, 103 tells us that as well. Jeremiah. So why is God's word declared to be as sweet as honey? Well, because it proclaims the good news of the gospel. Have you ever eaten something that tastes really good, but it sours in your stomach? Maybe six donuts or something like that. I don't know. Um, It tastes delicious, but then it just doesn't sit well. Now, Ezekiel doesn't say that, but he does say that the words he spoke were, were, uh, were bitter words, words of lamentation, words of woe. For Ezekiel, as it may be for us, part of the bitterness is, is people personally rejecting the message we bring. 
sometimes with violence. So clearly here, John's going through the same process as Ezekiel. He's being recommissioned, as it were, as a prophet because he has a critical and essential task, a message to give. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ came to earth as one of us, an infant born in Bethlehem, fully human, fully God, lived a perfect life, uh, died on the cross for us. He took the penalty for our sins. He received the wrath of God. Uh, he died. He rose victorious from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Friends, that's wonderfully sweet. All right? It's incredibly sweet. But even as it's sweet for the believer, for those who refuse to believe it, the gospel becomes words of judgment and woe. God's goodness comes alongside God's judgment. Sweetness and bitterness. So what's the point? We must seek, even as they aided, to, to, to fully absorb God's word so we can proclaim it. We want to proclaim the sweetness of God's word for salvation. For guidance in working out our salvation's impact with fear and trembling. The comfort of God's word for those who are suffering. Strength for those who are cross-bearing. Remember, John himself is in exile uh, when he receives his vision. He's suffering persecution, even as he's being used by God to strengthen and give hope to believers who are suffering persecution. So we should hunger to know all the Word of God, not just part of it, all of it. Moses said, these words are our life. But as we give it out, we must remember there are those who will refuse it. There are those who would rather die than humble themselves and believe the message. There are those who refuse to repent, as we saw last week. It is a heartbreaking reality. And again, it's a huge task. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I mean, John's seen amazing things. He's seen this awe-filled worship. He's, he's seen the power of prayer. Now he understands he's got to clearly communicate the gospel message. Now, some of your Bibles have the word is about there is translated as against. But I think it's better to say about. The idea is in naming these four groups, it's really symbolizing the world. Peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So why is John recommissioned? Perhaps why are we? Again, I think it's the urgency of the message. As God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, uh, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. 1 Timothy 2 tells us, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So nearly 2,000 years after John, our task is still not finished. We must, as God's people, enter into God's story, into His story, into history itself. We emphasize very often that, remember, the, the, the gospel proclamation is generational. 
That's why you want to seize opportunities to keep the nursery, keep God's covenant children, uh, to help with Sunday school, Wednesday night alive. Uh, then beyond these walls, there are still those who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the good news. So we want the gospel down the hallway, but also to the ends of the earth. The church must go to all peoples, all nations, all languages, and all kings. And as a church, we remain steadfastly engaged. We must remain steadfastly engaged in the unfinished task before us. So what about us? Uh, When it comes to our task, uh, we see here the power of God. Friends, we have the authority uh, represented by this colossal angel sent by the triune God. And John's telling these seven churches in Asia Minor, that we know represent all the churches of people across all the ages. That they're little and struggling. But they have this commission from this colossal angel whose feet are planted on the, the sea and on the land. That they don't need to fear as they take out the gospel message to their cities. As we sing with the children, what? I am weak, but he is strong. So we can with confidence lift high the cross and take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. We see the power of the word itself. This word gives life. This word's a sweet word of salvation to us. Yes, it's a word of judgment as well for unbelievers. Let me just say, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, I would urge you to hear God's word, but believe God's word. Believe the good news about Jesus that we share and be saved. Turn from your sin. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Amazing grace, what? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, We'd love to share with you that sweet word today. And that's the power of the gospel witness. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, there's not a person alive today who's beyond the reach of the gospel. Uh, The gospel gives life. It brings people from death to life, from darkness to to light, from despair to hope, from hell's heartache to heaven's joy. God gives us the strength and the hope to make the gospel known. So let's take the angel's menu recommendation. Take and eat the sweet and sour scroll. Equip ourselves by taking, eating, making a part of us. Giving us strength to share God's world as we engage this world. Boldly, prayerfully, lovingly, compassionately, obediently. Here and there and everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we have your word. And that, Father, through your word, you've made known to us the salvation that's offered through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, how sweet it is, Father, uh, that you have loved us so, and we thank you for it. So, Father, we pray you'll give us uh, boldness and courage and compassion and love, Father, to, to share with others as we engage the world around us. Father, engage the next generation here to engage people in our community, Lord, uh, our, our, our neighbors, Father, our co-workers, our classmates. 
And Father, indeed, to reach out to the whole world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's anybody here that doesn't yet know the sweetness of the gospel message. Father, may, may they be encouraged today, Father, called by you to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. We would pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.